0: You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Okay, everyone, welcome back. Uh, we are going to do our actually the first gymnasium in English. That's going to be really exciting. So please let me know what you think, if it was too difficult or if it was fine. Uh, and I have invited another colleague of mine, Shireen, who works in our Middle East and North Africa program and she is going to talk to us about the Israel-Palestine conflict and the possible one-state solution, maybe? We'll see. We'll see what Shirin says. Please. Hi. Um, thanks so much for coming on this really beautiful day. Uh, as Ilva uh, said, this is uh, the first one in English that we do, and it's also my first school talk, so I think um, hopefully it'll be... a. Happy adventure for both of us. Um, But I am going to start with a quote. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Um, But yeah, as Yulva said, I work on uh, a group of Palestinian and Israeli intellectuals who are trying to create a movement for a one democratic state solution in Palestine and Israel. Um, But a lot of what I do is also on kind of the role of intellectuals in creating uh, social change generally. So I'm going to focus a little bit on that and try to give you a few quotes from what they think they're trying to do and who they think they are and stuff like that. And then hopefully we can have a conversation about it. Um, So yeah, so uh, this is a really famous quote by uh, an American uh, critical uh, thinker and activist an academic called Howard Zinn, where he said, um, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this world in a different direction. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. To live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. Um, So, Uh, I just wanted to start with that because as many of you know, or have probably heard by now, I work on the peace process in Palestine and Israel sometimes. Um, And it's a particularly bad time for that peace process today, um, but also for the region of the Middle East as a whole. Um, But sadly, in the kind of work that I do, uh, both in academia and in the media, Uh, What people choose to emphasize the most about this conflict and the history of this region as a whole is not always those times and places when people uh, have come together and acted magnificently, and there really are so many of those times, Uh, but those times and places of defeat, of division and violence, and those times and places uh, that magnify people's differences as opposed to highlighting our common humanity and, and so on. Uh, So I chose to begin my talk uh, with this quote uh, because I'd like you all to think about the stories you have heard the most uh, about Palestine and Israel as opposed to the stories and realities of the conflict and the people who live on the land that are often untold and the reasons that you think maybe uh, might be behind why these stories are often left unsaid. And in the kind of work that I do, which is often referred to as critical theory in the discipline of international relations, we are taught that everything we research, everything uh, we write, uh, the analysis we're able to see or put together on a particular topic, uh, is often shaped by where we, as researchers and academics, choose to place our point of beginning. So this, of course, applies to where we choose to begin a story or an analysis historically but it's also about whose knowledge, whose geography, whose worldviews and realities and struggles we choose to begin with when we try to analyze conflicts or social transformation or movements or talk about them in academia. Um, And to take you somewhere a little bit different, uh, the great uh, Italian philosopher of revolution who you might know, uh, Antonio Gramsci, uh, who liked to keep things simple most of the time, wrote that if we want to create the kind of theory in uh, IR, or generally in our work, that can become a foundation for changing the world and for revolutionizing the way that people think uh, and the things that they think are possible or impossible, we should always begin with with their lives and with their realities and with their struggles, and create theory that comes from inside these realities and struggles, which a lot of the time academics I don't know if you have noticed, don't really do. They start from kind of very abstract theories and then uh, apply them to places or people. And so um, you get a very different picture from what is actually going on on the ground sometimes. Uh, So in doing this, he also said that we must be open about the fact that knowledge is also political and that its silences are often a reflection of the historical power dynamics in any society and that filling these silences in literature, in academia, in the media, is one way to empower people again, uh, to not just tell one dehumanizing story about their identity, their history, or their reality, and to open up spaces for alternative ways of thinking, uh, of being, of connecting, uh, for understanding and imagining alternative realities and selves, um, and for the building of an alternative, more just world. Um, And as the wonderful Nigerian uh, author, Chimamanda Adichie, who if you have not read, I strongly recommend that you read, uh, said, um, uh, stories matter. Having the power to tell many different stories about a place or a people matters. Stories have been used to dispossess and to dehumanize people, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. Uh, When we reject the single story, when we realize that there is never a single story about any place, we regain a kind of paradise. Um, So to take you back to to the peace process in in, uh, Palestine and Israel, the story I'm going to try to introduce to you today is, is about a growing movement of Palestinian and Israeli intellectuals who I research who argue that the peace process since the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993 is now dead, Um, and that a two-state solution to the conflict has become territorially impossible, and that the only just alternative is to create a grassroots movement in both societies for one democratic state for everyone who lives on the land of historic Palestine today, uh, regardless of their ethnicity, and for any Palestinian uh, refugees who want to exercise their um, internationally recognized right of return. Um, But before I do that, I'm going to make a few brief points about the peace process itself and why these intellectuals argue that it is unworkable. Um, As many of you probably remember, well, I don't know if you remember, but as many of you probably know, there are, Few more iconic moments in world history than that picture of uh, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin uh, and their handshake on the White House lawn with Bill Clinton after they signed the Oslo Accords in 1993. Uh, This moment marked the beginning of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process that we still talk about today and the moment both Israel and the Palestinians mutually recognized each other. What you might not know is that instead of just being based in international law, this peace process was based uh, on direct negotiations between the two sides uh, that are sponsored by the Americans, which was a major defeat for the Palestinians and one of the reasons the peace process has since failed. Um, So even though under international law, the right of return of the 4.5 million Palestinian refugees is non-negotiable. The wall being built by Israel in the occupied Palestinian territories is illegal. The Israeli military occupation of the West Bank and its siege of the Gaza Strip itself is illegal. Uh, The expanding complexes of settlements on the land that was supposed to become a Palestinian state is illegal. And all of these things are recognized as illegal by the international community except for mainly the US. Uh, The fact that the peace process Ignores international law means that they became either negotiable or, as in the case of the right, uh, the Palestinian right of return, they just weren't part of the peace process at all. So the Oslo peace process doesn't—it re- also doesn't recognize. Uh, so that means that it doesn't recognize the the Palestinian refugees at all. The peace process. Um, Uh, But it also doesn't recognize the Palestinians who stayed or remained in Israel itself after the state was created in 1948, and who today make up around 20% of of its population, and are treated as second-class citizens by the Israeli state. Um, So as a whole, uh, only the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip are recognized as Palestinians by this peace process, uh, which erases the majority of Palestinians. Uh, so, one state uh, intellectuals argued that it divided the Palestinian people from its beginning and that the Palestinian Authority, which was created during the Oslo Accords, accepted this fragmentation and does not represent them all today. Uh, so, one famous uh, intellectual said, uh, to date, no diaspora Palestinian has proposed to Israel that if Israel grant the diaspora a right of return, In exchange, it could deny West Bank and Gaza Strip Palestinians their right to self-determination and continue to colonize their land. Why then does the leadership of the West Bank believe that it can compromise the rights of Palestinians it does not even represent? So while the Oslo Accord was celebrated by the international community as the beginning of a two-state solution to the conflict, Uh, These intellectuals argue that it represented the launching and worsening of processes of separation and colonization on the land, itself. Um, And today Israel has in effect annexed uh, all of Jerusalem as well as parts of the West Bank through the expansion of its settlements. Um, And as an Israeli intellectual has pointed out, uh, this settlement grid was designed to make the occupation irreversible by fragmenting the territory of the potential Palestinian state and making the removal of the settlements impossible. So one state intellectuals argue that the fact that the peace process today is accepted by the international community as one that will lead to a two-state solution uh, ignores or erases the realities on the ground in Israel and Palestine uh, itself today. So what do these intellectuals want then? Basically, very simply, they want to create a grassroots movement that calls for reunifying the Palestinian people, uh, for the sharing of the whole land in a democratic state instead of the idea of separating the two people as the only way forward, and for a peace process that is based in the framework of international law and that calls for universal human rights and equal citizenship for everyone who lives in the land of Palestine and Israel. Um, and so in 2007, while the Americans warned the international community that the window for creating a viable two-state solution to the conflict was closing, these intellectuals held a conference in London where they wrote and signed what they called the One State Declaration. Um, and this declaration stated the principles the movement agreed that a one democratic state should be founded uh, and uh, you know, mobilized for. And, uh, I mean, you can you can Google it if you're interested in reading the whole declaration, but it basically included the fact that any process of peace uh, should begin uh, in 1948, and affirm the fact that the land belongs to all who live in it and to those who were expelled from it since 1948, regardless of religion, ethnicity, national origin, or current citizenship status, that any system of government must be based on the principle of equality, Uh, that the Palestinian right of return must be implemented, uh, that any form of state must be uh, non-sectarian, and that a process of justice and reconciliation should be launched. Uh, And of course that all Palestinians, uh, the diaspora, the refugees and the Palestinians inside Israel as well must be centrally involved in in the creation of this uh, solution. So these are the principles that basically are the, 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 remain the basis of unity of this vision and this group of intellectuals. Um, and after the conference ended, they stated, "You know, the, the two days of discussions in London proved that there's a growing movement among Palestinians and Israelis that call for thinking about their common future in terms of equality and, and integration rather than separation and exclusion. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of stop there, um, but I'm gonna leave you with some quotes from uh, three different influential intellectuals uh, that are part of this group. Um, and after that, uh, I hope you will share all your uh, ideas with me. Uh, the first is uh, by Edward Said, where he says, uh, Palestine is and has always been a land of many histories, It is a radical simplification to think of it as principally or exclusively Jewish or Arab. The question, I believe, is not how to devise means for persisting and trying to separate them, but to see whether it is possible for them to live together as fairly and peacefully as possible. The beginning is to develop something entirely missing from both Israeli and Palestinian realities today, the idea and practice of citizenship, not of ethnic or racial community, as the main vehicle for coexistence. Uh, The second is by uh, Ilan Pape, who some of you might know, um, where he says if this unrealistic two-state formula that says that settlements can be dismantled is realizable, who is going to dismantle the settlements? The real two-state formula is the one being implemented in front of our eyes. Uh, it means 50% of the West Bank annexed to Israel and the other 50% as a bantustan surrounded by walls and fences, but with a Palestinian flag. Um, and the last one is by uh, an Israeli academic who's also a famous filmmaker, uh, where he says, uh, it might be a professional deformation or just a refusal of ideas like utopia But I have a problem in speaking about a one-state solution as a future idea. I deal with documentary cinema and documentary cinema deals with what exists. One state is the accurate definition of what is today the ruling power over Palestine or Israel. This is not about a revolutionary position that requires us to think about how we can create this one state. What I'm talking about is more modest and more concrete: the transformation of the existing one-state into a democratic state. I will stop there. <laughs> Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.